Welcome to episode 388 with my guest Daniel A. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter and Instagram handle you can follow me at. Um, I've mentioned before that a lot of times themes will kind of reveal themselves in the surveys and some of the surveys we, we actually, there's a theme kind of through a lot of the show of, um, not being a part of a club or feeling excluded and um, some really interesting surveys. There's a couple, I'm going to read a couple before the interview and then a couple after the interview. And there's two of them after the interview that are really compelling. They're from the Shame and Secret survey. And one is by a man and the other is by a woman. And they both talk about feeling like they're monsters. And um, yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it, huh? Enough of this fucking around. Let's let's dive in deep. Uh, Grady is still adorable. Uh, my ex got a puppy about two weeks ago, and he's eight weeks old. And I went over there the other night. My ex and I are on very good terms. And I went over there the other night, and Grady loves the beanbag chair, which is where Herbert used to uh, sleep and lounge. And I laid down on the beanbag chair with him, and Grady climbed up my chest and laid his neck across mine, and I held him there for an hour and a half. He would doze off. He'd take little naps. Sometimes he'd wake up and it'd give me kisses, and oh, my God, it was I was in heaven. I was in heaven, and uh, I'll be posting, posting uh, pictures of that as, as they come in at a certain point. Uh, you folks on Patreon are gonna feel free to tell me enough, enough with the Grady pictures, but, um, it's just, there's nothing like a puppy. How can you ever be in a bad mood around a puppy? I don't know if I've ever, I suppose if you're training the puppy. Yeah, she, my ex definitely has her hands full. Trying to, trying to deal with that, but oh, he's so fucking cute. And Ivy, who is almost 15 years old, is running around like she's two years old playing with him. I've, that's what they say that when you bring a puppy in, um, assuming that they're compatible with the older dog, that it extends the life of the, uh, of the older dog. And I thought Ivy was going to be all pouty and sullen. <laughs> You don't think dogs can act pouty and sullen. You haven't met Ivy. But uh, it's so fun watching them play together. And he is so tiny. He is so tiny. If, if, if you were served a loaf of bread the size of him, you would say, why are you shorting me? What did I do to offend you? Why is the loaf of bread so small, you cheapskate? Let's 
read an awfulsome moment. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Better Days Ahead. And she writes, I sell paintings at a crafter's market. I made a joke in my booth today about my inventory being the product of my last manic episode and got the kind of appreciative belly laugh from a guy that could only come from someone who's been there and deeply understood just before he admitted as much with words. His lady nodded hard at his laugh. We all shared a beautiful moment of mental illness camaraderie. Thank you for that. I want to read an email I got from a uh, listener, and I'm withholding their name. And she writes, When I first found your podcast, I was excited because I enjoyed listening to it very much. Nothing good ever follows a sentence like that. On the June 1st episode, uh, I felt you criticizing... Uh, you, crit- you degraded people who voted for Trump. Uh, once again, I felt you criticizing me based on your own perceptions. I have a really strong feeling that you don't care about what I'm saying here. No, I do care about what you're saying, and that's why I'm writing, uh, reading what you, what you wrote to me. And um, continuing, but I find in this time that many people are accusing others of being prejudiced, and as they are doing so, they are themselves being prejudiced. I feel like you are prejudiced against me without knowing me. Um, Best of luck to you. I won't be listening to your podcast anymore because I do not feel accepted by you. Well, imagine if you couldn't walk away from that podcast and it was on every day and he talked about you, calling you a rapist or where you were from, a shithole, or found it funny uh, that People grab your vagina without your permission, uh, and he enjoys doing it, and you're a survivor of sexual assault. And not only was his podcast not taken off the air, but it was voted the most popular podcast everywhere, and that podcaster was given the power to decide what rights you have based on your skin color, your gender, what country you're from your ethnicity, where you want to go to the bathroom, or who you want to marry, and who you want to love. I would use the words prejudice and degradation and not feeling accepted for those things. I think the thing between us is that I'm no longer your cup of tea, and you baffle me. Let's give some love to our sponsor. I've mentioned before that... uh, BetterHelp.com is a sponsor of this podcast. And I'm going to read uh, an email I got from a listener named Mark. And he wrote, uh, I found myself joining BetterHelp.com because I was struggling with serious anxiety and borderline depression. The idea of a counselor I didn't see or even speak to seemed foreign and honestly frightening. After a few difficult experiences running to make appointments with in-person therapists, This option also made perfect sense to an introvert like me. After filling out a short questionnaire where I could privately explain my struggles, I was paired with a supportive, caring, professional counselor. It's hard to put into words the comfort of knowing I can send a message to him anytime, day or night. I don't expect a reply immediately. The relief is in getting the struggle out of my head and onto the screen for someone else to help process so I don't have to carry it alone. I find I can think about my questions and his replies before responding. I can take time to process my thoughts in private. As someone struggling with uh, my own challenges, it felt like a rock being lifted from my chest. 
After several months of messaging, we now schedule weekly chat room based sessions. No video, no audio, just typing on two halves of the screen. We can process the best and worst of my week. As strange as this may sound, my counselor, who I've never spoken to, has become a trusted advisor as well as a therapist. He is willing to validate my thoughts and challenge me on bad assumptions. This has been my longest and most productive therapy arrangement ever. Cheers, Paul. Mark. Thank you, Mark. Um, so, yeah, you can you can correspond however you want with uh, with your therapist. You can, I prefer video, um, but you can do audio, chat, uh, on and on and on and on. And if you want to know more, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Fill out a questionnaire, and they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of online counseling to see if it's right for you. You need to be over 18, and please remember to do the uh, slash mental after BetterHelp.com so they know you you came from uh, from this here podcast. All right. I'm going to get to the interview. I just want to read a real short, awfulsome moment. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Oldest Daughter. She writes, I wanted to buy my dad a Father's Day card, but they didn't have one that said, putting your nine-year-old daughter's dinner plate on the floor and making her eat on her hands and knees like a dog because you didn't like her table manners in front of the rest of the family doesn't make you a dad. It makes you a sadistic bastard. But the card store was out of those, so I chose to ignore the day instead. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sights. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with uh, Daniel A, and that's uh, a bit of a pseudonym. Um, we we uh, you know feel comfortable uh, attaching your name to this because stuff's still kind of going on in le- yeah. legal proceedings. Uh, but the big thing that that I wanted to talk to you about is um, you are a victim of uh, domestic violence, and people yeah. a lot of times think men can't be victims of uh, domestic violence. And women can't be perpetrators. And while obviously the overwhelming majority of uh, perpetrators are male and uh, victims are, are, are female, uh, I thought it would be interesting to, um, you know, one of the things I, that I love to do on this show is um, shine a light on things that you don't hear about a lot. Because I think there's a lot of people, myself included, that have always felt like m- our stories aren't valid because we don't hear other people sharing something similar. So where, where should we start with uh, with you? Well, I mean, I guess one thing to start is to kind of look at domestic violence as a whole. Um, generally, it is underreported. It's very, very underreported in males. Um, speaking from experience, it's not very easy to share 
anything about it, let alone specific details about it. Um, there's in our society because, definitely because you feel shame. Well, yeah, it's um, I, I'm not a person who feels a lot of shame, but at the same time, that's something that you don't you don't just walk around and advertise, right? Mm-hmm. You don't. It's something that happens behind closed doors, and I think that's true across the board. Why do you think then, if it, if it's not the shame, why do you think people uh, keep it silent? Is it you're trying to protect your partner? I think that there's some of that for sure. I mean, definitely. I, I took a lot of efforts to protect my partner during the whole thing, um, including keeping my mouth quiet when it was time to testify after she had been arrested, um, lying to the police when the police showed up at the house. Oh, no, no, she didn't hit me. No, none of that was going on. And, you know, thanks, officer. You know, obviously, we've just got some issues. Um, basically sweeping it under the rug so that it doesn't get out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that part of it is really the conflict between the, the image that people have of relationships that people have versus the actual reality of it. Yeah. And that's where, that's where the real thing comes in. I remember very distinctly, there was one time, um, this is shortly after our first child was born and we're there and we had a family friend over and her mother was visiting from out of town. And the friend's mother, or the friend's or, mother. Okay. Mm-hmm. The friend's mother is visiting from out of town and, um, you know, she's older. She's got a grandson who's, you know, 10 or whatever. And she's there, you know, observing. She says, Oh, you know, you guys are such the perfect family. And inside I'm like, you don't even know the half of it. No clue. No clue. I mean, even our closest friends didn't have any idea what was going on family didn't know what was going on and you know then now it comes to the time where you know we're separating and there's a lot of stuff that has happened that can affect you know legal separation and divorce in this state and it's it's interesting because you know we had neighbors around who would hear things and you know hear glass breaking or Mm. hear screaming or doors slamming or cars peeling away. Nobody wants to touch it with a 10 foot bowl. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to stand up for what's right. They're just, no, sorry. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people are afraid that getting involved would embarrass the other people because then they would be, you know, admitting we, we heard Mm-hmm. this chaos that you're going in and experiencing and um i i think i think most people if they knew some one of those people needed help i think the average person would probably get involved maybe i'm i'm just uh, filtering it through my own feelings or or because I've never been in that position where mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, somebody's getting abused next yeah. door. Do I call the cops? What do I do? Thank God I've never been in that position. But um, I, I bet that's a, I bet that's a hard one because you, you would imagine the, the last thing you want those people to feel is embarrassed. Yeah, like yeah, their I mean, laundry's hanging out there on the line. Yeah, I mean, there's a big stigma around abuse there's a big stigma around mental illness and then when you get 
two of those things happening at the same time, I think that definitely people do just, they just kind of don't, they don't mm -hmm. want to get involved. They don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. They don't want anybody to retaliate, which and, can and does happen. And is your ex-wife somebody who uh, lives with mental illness? She is undiagnosed, but definitely has episodes of extreme rage, extreme anger, extreme violence. Um, just absolutely. It's, it's like there's a switch, switch that goes off. I hear that gets, all the time. Gets triggered and, you know, all bets are off at that point. Yeah. So. It's, it's almost a dissociation with, uh, with people sometimes. Yeah. Um, what was her childhood like? You know, hers, her parents had separated, um, and she was raised by a single mother with some siblings, but, uh, you know, not in a, not in an affluent environment. Father mm -hmm. was largely absent. Um, I mean, he's still around now, but, um, you know, he was out on the road working all the time. And so there wasn't, I don't think there was much of him around and, you know, the mother was doing her best to take care of them on a you know, a mm -hmm. teacher's salary and, um, yeah. And grew mm -hmm. up in, in a rougher city as well. Was she physically abused as a, as a kid? I don't think so. I haven't really mm -hmm. heard anything about that. There was, there was some time, you know, some, some rumors of allegations that she had made against her mother that were, you know, un, unsupported. So I don't know if that happened or not, but, um, in fact, the last time that, she was really violent with me was actually after a night we had a good night and you know we're just kind of winding down and i started to ask her about you know what is it about your upbringing because it's different from mine that makes this stuff okay the reaction wasn't what i had thought it might be it, the reaction instead was anger and um yeah that was that was the last time that uh that that happened that yeah. you tried to bring it up and talk about it? No, that she was violent with me. Oh, the last time that she was violent with That was with the you. last time she was violent with me, because I told her, I said, I'm calling the cops and I'm filing for divorce. Yeah. What What uh, were some of the things that she would do? Um, kicking, slapping, scratching, punching, um, throwing objects. Um, you know, she had thrown something at me one time and, and split my head open. Is that the scar I see in your everybody. forehead? No, no, no. That's a different one. Okay. The other one. That's a different girlfriend. Here. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had that one my whole life. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, it's definitely the things that she had done. I mean, it's just amazing to me because it, it escalated as well. You know, it started out with throwing some things or smashing something or, you know, smashing a phone or stepping on a phone or something like that. And then, you know, gets burned things, chopped up possessions, you know, like childhood possessions, things that were gifts from family, cut them up with scissors, you know, just all sorts of. So w was the rage taken out at first on objects and then directed towards you yeah. later? Yeah, generally. Yeah, it was mostly it was objects and threatening me and throwing things. But then, you know, it just escalates. Would she then um, be contrite after afterwards sometimes sometimes you know there is a couple of occasions over the course of our relationship where um it's like the the whole harsh 
violent exterior, like it had kind of been exhausted. And, you know, she'd say things like, I don't want to be this way. I don't know why I'm this way. I don't know why I get so mad. And those were the times where it's like, you need to get some help. Um, I tried to get her to get help many, many times and just wouldn't do it. And, you know, eventually things came to a head when I started to see the effects of her treatment of me on our children. Once they could, they got old enough to be able to vocalize that they don't like what's going on, mm-hmm. I realized that this is just... I mean, I always knew it was a bad situation, but that's when it really hit me as a father that I need to make the right decision for my kids, which is to remove this source of conflict from our family. Yeah. So Is your hope to get full custody? We'll see what happens. I don't know yet. Um, you know, of course... Everybody would love to have their kids with them all the time, but you know, yeah, you, you'd I, be surprised. According to the surveys that that I read, a lot of a lot of people. Um, I'm not saying the majority by any means, but quite a few people want to get in the car and leave their family behind. Yeah, I guess <laughs> it's kind of funny. I did hear my wife say that one. She said, "She said, you know what? Sometimes I just wish I could just get in the car yeah. and just leave." You yeah. know what? I think th- I think though that's that's j- the, the fantasy similar to God. I don't want to have to do this thing I hate doing. Uh, look at that bridge. It yeah. would just be so nice to just jump off that bridge and not have to have this upcoming week that I that I yeah. have. I mean, it's it's kind of escapism, right? It's like, yeah. You know, I'll just get in my car and go. I'm just out of here. <laughs> Dust on the wind. <laughs> you guys have fun. Lace from rubber. In I'll the, send in you a postcard. Gravel. I yeah. love I love shitty movies where the person uh, peels out a gravel and it and the tires squeal. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh man, that is that is some <laughs> bad production. Um, yeah. So, so what is going through your mind when shit is getting hur- hurled at you and? She's calling you names. Um, are you are you tempted to engage? Do you shut down? What do what do you? How do you react? I generally try to rather. I can't speak in the present tense because it's not going on anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, my general mode is to say, "Hey, listen, that's not how things are going. You need to calm down." Um, which probably pisses her off even more. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, I've, I tried basically every trick in the book to try to try to diffuse it. Um, try to get her to see things rationally. But it's like, I think that when you're, when you're in a rage state like that, um, things don't, you're not processing information normally. It's like talking to a drunk person, but the, the liquor is adrenaline. Yeah. I had a, um, a psychologist that I was seeing during the time and he says, well, you know, you know, when you, when you get really mad, your, your IQ drops 20 points basically because mm-hmm. anything that's really going on up in the upper brain, that's all, that's all shut down. I mean, you're completely in, in adrenal, limbic, adrenal mode. limbic mode. Yeah, exactly. I need to kill something. Mm-hmm. So I get back to the cave and, and yeah. paint it. Yeah. Yeah. Paint it on the wall. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of that. And it's it's kind of hard because I've kind of distanced myself from the experience so much. It's like I'm really trying to just move on positively in my life from a very bad period. Um, 
and to think about it, it's there's there's definitely panic that that happens where it's like, what can I do? Right? You try to leave your your egress is blocked. Right? Mm-hmm. How do you get out of the situation without you know escalating it or and making where, it and, worse? And where are your kids at this point? Yeah. Oh, this is this much of this is before okay. we had kids. Yeah, definitely. Um, and did you, know. you did you and this is not to insult you but did yeah. you what were your thoughts on ha- bringing children into a relationship like that did you, you know, think she would change and once kids came yeah, around it would, I've seen, it would I've get seen better that. I've seen that happen yeah where um, she just needs you know, the pressure of motherhood to relax and gets better. I mean that that definitely I mean that happened with <laughs> um, with one of my relatives like she was she was all over the map in a very similar way had a kid and straightened up and she was fine wow um you know, and that responsibility, I think, has has tempered things a bit. But, you know, I mean, by and large, the relationship as a whole was just, it was just terrible. And the main thing that I've always wanted is just to, to be able to help her and help her get better. Because, you know, she's unlike any other person that I've met in the world, which is one of the things that I was, you know, drawn to her in the beginning. Talk about the good parts. Um, good parts. I mean, she's a ton of fun. Like absolutely, and um, good sense of humor has has a great laugh. Yeah, I would make her laugh, and we'd have a have a good time. Um, you know, she's definitely she's very caring. Um, you know, especially towards our kids. Um, and there were times when she was caring towards me as well. So you know, I don't want. You know, it's not like people are are all bad or are all good. You no, know, we the say world that is we not, say that all the all the time on this podcast. Yeah. It's. Yeah, it's not a black or white situation. And one of the things that is kind of ironic about that is that um, she would describe things in, in terms of black or white. It's it's always black or white, which is one of those things. You know, I remember at one point um, talking to a psychotherapist about what they call distorted thinking, right? And one of those is that everything is black or white. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you can't get anywhere in the world if if things are black or white no it's very confusing and it's like yeah. you, you you need a scalpel but you're using a hammer for yeah. everything yeah yeah exactly there's just no precision and it's just all or nothing yeah and that's uh, very uh textbook for addicts mm-hmm. and i would l- lump uh, people that um have rage issues I-, I would lump them in with addicts you think so just oh, from the, yeah. the adrenal and the endorphins and mm-hmm. the you know because i have experienced moments of white rage where i'm not thinking clearly it's thankfully it's always been on the ice uh, mm-hmm. playing hockey but where I, my iq dropped uh significantly and i would uh like i remember one one time a guy have you ever seen the movie Slapshot? Mm-hmm. well there's this there's this scene in it where um one player clotheslines another player who's going the opposite direction and this guy did it to me wasn't even Mm -hmm. near the puck i hadn't done anything to this guy and it just took my feet right out from underneath me and he just skated away and i saw red and so i went after him and the refs broke it up almost immediately so i couldn't get a punch in on the guy and i was so livid and i couldn't use my arms so i tried to spit on him and my spit went right into the referee's face and I got tossed for five games. But it was, there was no thought. It was, it was a switch had flipped. And 
I know what it's also like to promise myself I'm not going to drink. I'm, you know, I'm going to be good tonight. I'm not going to drive drunk. Next thing I know, I'm driving 105 down the freeway, weaving in and out of traffic with 10 beers in me, angry at the world, not giving a shit about anything. And they're really similar. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you survived both experiences. <laughs> um, and, now, and now I have a question. And I, I only question. got punished for one, yeah. thankfully. Yeah, five games. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's stop. <laughs> um, my, my teammates never let me live it down. So I have a question for you about that. So you say that you've experienced this and that you saw red. Did you literally like see red or are you saying it like like they write it? Um no, there there is a um like a almost like a veil of a of a color that mm. kind of um it, it's not any, anything really obvious, but my vision would would change yeah. a bit. It would uh you know, my head would just feel s- super hot, just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fight or flight, yeah. I, I suppose. Yeah, that's interesting because I don't really have those types of reactions as much as other people, you know, mm-hmm. and it's probably because I had a relatively calm upbringing. Like the only time I really remember ever having that kind of jittery feeling was when mm-hmm. I was on a bike and I turned a corner real quick and, you know. Came, Slammed your face? No, I came three inches from a screeching Ford F-150. Oh, my God. And I was fine, but I was a little shaky oh, for a yeah. little bit. Um, so for me, I don't have that response. I've experienced it sometimes, but generally my adrenaline is 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 under control. Like, mm-hmm. I like to compete, and when I do compete, I do feel a little bit of, just a little bit of butterflies. Mm-hmm. But it's still, it's... Mm-hmm. Something that says, okay, well, you're actually engaged in this activity. It's going to make you play a little better and going to give you better visual acuity and better responsiveness and you're going to be more present. So that's my experience with that. A little bit of adrenaline is great. And, and, you know, my experience has been that underneath that, and it's taken a lot of really deep work and self-reflection to get to this place, but underneath that anger is always fear. It's mm-hmm. always fear, fear that I am not worth respecting, fear that I'm weak, fear that I'm not enough, fear that uh, I'm going to let my teammates down, um, you know, on and on and on and on. Yeah. Um, so there, I'm a much, much more mellow player. It's been years since I got into a fight or even mm-hmm. wanted to fight somebody uh, because I think I'm more in touch with the fears now. And I'm able to kind of nip them in the bud by going, all right, you're getting a little too worked up about winning. Just remember, you're you're an old dude. You should be grateful that you can even still put the skates on. Let's go have fun. And then if somebody does something shitty, you know, I just let it roll off my back. But I've been both people. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, um, it is scary because I've, I've experienced that, but I've never... I've never taken it out on somebody that was just, I guess, an innocent bystander. I mean, would you consider mm-hmm. yourself an innocent bystander in those situations with your wife? Do you do you ever feed this situation? I think that there's definitely aspects of both our personalities that are not complementary, right? My response is to shut down, which doesn't always help. Um I definitely read a lot of self-help books over the course of our relationship because I was the one with the problem. I'm the one who's messed up. It's all my fault. Everything, I mean... In your mind or her mind? Her telling me that. 
I see. Her reactions are perfectly normal. They're normal human reactions. And everybody's, you know, everybody's entitled to react however they want to whatever sure. stimulus yeah. they get, whether it's reasonable or not. There's, there's stimulus, and then there's stimulus in a very, very large reaction. Yeah. Um, and I did, you know, when you were talking about trying to nip it in the bud, it's like, okay, I, you know, and I've, I've learned this. It's like, okay, you know, I see that you're kind of getting a little bit upset right now. You know, all these things about observing behavior and communicating things and all that. Reflecting or mirroring yeah. them, let them know yeah. that you understand what they're feeling and you yeah. hear them. Active listening. Yeah. All of these things. Didn't work. No. They didn't. It wasn't my communication skills that were the problem. It's the underlying rage and disorder that is that is the problem. Um, you know, there's times where she had alluded to post-traumatic stress syndrome or disorder. I don't know where they're classifying it mm -hmm. these days. Um, and her responses were very much like that. It's a, a small noise and snap. She's at the window trying to see what's happening outside. Um, you know, I'd hear screams from the other room. Come on, what's going on? It's a spider. Things like that, where the reaction is just very, very out of line with the stimulus. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably a, a contributing factor. Yeah. Was she ever specific about what it had caused the... PTSD. Yeah, she had had she had had a very, very abusive experience with a previous partner mm. that I think had a lot to do with that. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, like I I feel lucky that I've gotten out with you know some scars and some permanent bruises and you know I mean I'm definitely you know mentally still working through some of this stuff. You know, I say mentally, other people might say emotionally. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's still stuff and I've, I've even kind of joked about it with people. It's like, yeah, you know, my next girlfriend, she might say like, pass the salt. And I'd be like, you don't tell me what to do, bitch. <laughs> you know, things like that where, you know, my reaction might not be in line with mm -hmm. what's, what you, the stimulus is. Have you gotten any kind of help around, uh, around oh. this? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I've got a, one therapist that I see, you know at least twice a week. And I've got another one that I see every so often. Um, I, I suffer from depression. I've been seeing, you know, been under the care of a psychiatrist for geez, almost two years now, which has made a huge difference. And in fact, I think was a contributing factor to me getting out of the bad relationship where, you know, you start to realize you start to get a little more self-worth and you know, the world just looks different. I don't mm -hmm. know, you know, if your listeners, anybody who suffers from depression out there somewhere, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you you have this very narrow focus where it's like you don't see that your field of vision is is smaller. You and can't even clean the toilet. How are you going to tackle no, an issue of the, whether or not you're going to deal with a relationship? Yeah, everything everything is tough when you're depressed. And like I found it, it has creeped back. Like there have been some days where it's like, just I just want to sleep some more. I can't get out of bed. I just sleep more. I just sleep another half hour. You know, I mean, it's bad. Um, but it's like the more conscious you are of it and, and you know how not to get back on that slippery slope, then you, you can get over it. Um, but the, what I was referring to was the field of vision that you, you can get once, once your depression is kind of chemically lifted. Um, it's amazing. The world is a much better looking place. And I remember the first time I'd ever been 
been treated with any antidepressants was several years ago. And I remember taking them and after they, you know, started to work after a couple of days, looking around saying, you know what? This is how normal people can deal <laughs> with life. I mean, it was amazing. It, it was absolutely amazing. amazing because, like, you know, you see these people and they're, you know, they're well adjusted. They, they have laugh nice easily. Families, yeah. They laugh, you know, like they're, they're capable. Um, and, you know, I'm sure everybody has good days and bad days, but depression is very different. I mean, it's, it's like if, if you've ever been to the, um, like the old, I mean, the old dentist where they put the big lead vest on you. Uh -huh. It's kind of like that, but on your mind and your whole body. That's a good, um, a good analogy. Yeah, it just you can just you just get pressed down and yeah, pressed down depression. Um, Andrew Solomon says that the opposite of depression isn't happiness; it's vitality. Yeah. And I think that sums it up. That is perfectly. That's very excellent. Yeah. He wrote a book called The Noonday Demon, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I have yet to read it, but a lot of people swear that it's like the Bible of uh, talking about depression. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's so, definitely, I don't know where we, we got a little sidetracked off there for a second. I mean, we're think. talking about your yeah. part in things, and you shut down, yes. and, and yeah. depression's one of the things exactly. that you live with, and that enabled you to get out of the relationship was by yes. beginning to uh, get a sense of normality and yeah. to see how how crazy yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. the situation and I think that, was. I think that being depressed contributed to me getting into the relationship as well. Um, you know, when, I, when we got together, it was a time um, where... You know, I was getting a little bit older. I knew that you're kind of supposed to get married at a certain point and, um, you know, had a job and was, was doing okay, but I was still definitely probably self-medicating far too often. With what? And um, just alcohol mm -hmm. and other drugs. Um, so doing that, I think, puts it just puts you in a different state where your self-worth isn't where it should be. Um, and your perceptive skills as far as what is good for you and what is not good for you are not as, as honed. And, you know, and also your, your notion of kind of what is, what is acceptable behavior or not. I mean, people do a lot of stupid things when they're drunk. Um, and when you're not drunk, when you're drinking a lot, you're feeling depression from having just shot all the dopamine oh, into yeah. your brain. Yeah, for sure. So there's that's definitely a component to yeah. it as well. Um and again, I mean meeting her was definitely a life changing experience for us both. Like we didn't have a lot of money. Um had just moved to a different city and really bootstrapped together to kind of start making a life for ourselves. Um despite other obvious incompatibility issues. So you know, I think that with the way that she was emotionally very, you know, very charged, very active, and the way that I am emotionally, which is very calm and non-reactive, um, didn't mix very well. And I've heard that, that that drives the other person crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a she called, she said something that was, um, you know, she always thought that I was, I was doing stuff, you know, that I'm, that I'm doing stuff passively, aggressively, and I'm trying to just screw mm -hmm. her over. No, I'm just living my life. 
But, you know, there were times where she said she used this term crazy making, which is, you know, I guess a, a hallmark of the passive aggressive where eh, I'm not really going to do that. You know, they just don't actually participate in things or do things to kind of spite the mm -hmm. other person. And I remember there was some issue where I was supposed to mail something, you know, just kind of like an, an errand of some sort. And I was talking to my psychologist at the time about it. And I said, yeah, you know, and I forgot to do this thing. And, you know, she thinks I'm being passive aggressive. She says, well, did you do it to stick it to her? I said, no, just forgot. She said, okay, well, that's not, it's not passive aggression. That's just being passive or forgetting something. And those types of checks against other people about what's going on, um, quite often in abusive relationships, those checks or the ability to have those checks made is actually, you know, excised from the relationship. Mm -hmm. um, meaning, they, they begin to believe the, the abuser that they're. Oh, exactly. And the abuser will cut you off from your friends. The abuser mm -hmm. will cut you off from your family. The abuser will tell you how to think and tell you mm. what is real and tell you that your feelings are invalid or your thoughts are invalid about what is happening. The um, thing that I would imagine separates the female victim from the male victim is I wonder, I've got to imagine that the male victim doesn't fear for their life as much as the female victim or is that me uh, being biased? I think that's a common misconception. Um, in one of the books that I had read during my, my course of self-guided self-help treatment yeah. um, to find out what was wrong with me in the relationship, there was one where there was uh, the, the author describes a, a tar, like huge guy, like, you know, he's beefy, like a rugby player or a football mm -hmm. player. And his wife is, you know, five foot one, kind of diminutive. And the psychologist talking said, well, you know, like, what is going on here? And he says, I'm afraid she's going to hurt me. And this is the thing. Fear is something that happens in the mind, right? Mm -hmm. The lower, I mean, in the brain, you know, these are, these are responses that we've developed over time. Um, and if you're afraid of something or if something is causing you anxiety or fear, it, it doesn't matter how big you are. It really doesn't. Um, you know, additionally, with men, we're, we're taught that you don't hit women. It's not the right thing to do. You know, I rephrase that. Nobody should be hitting anybody. But, um, you know, there's, there's this thing that where it's, it's somehow okay for a woman to hit a man. You see it portrayed in media. Um, people going, you know, a woman going buck wild on a guy. It's like, oh, it's just a domestic situation. I mean, well, it is. It's a domestic situation. It's a violent situation. Um, there were definitely times where I was afraid of what was going to happen. I mean, I've been threatened with knives and all sorts of stuff, um, hit with various objects. And, you know, the, like part of me is saying, okay, well, I know she's, you know, off the hinges right now. She's not really crazy. Like she's not really going to slit my throat in my sleep as she is threatened. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, and like, like you, you kind of, you kind of rationalize it. It's like, you know, yeah, I'm still here. She did not slit my throat as I slept. Doesn't mean she didn't threaten to do it. Um, and there was one time where, you know, she was basically kind of wailing with me 
wailing on me with both fists. And, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm a guy. I've taken some classes in martial arts. I started blocking every single hit that she did. She said, stop blocking me. Stop blocking me. I said, well, you have to understand, I do know how to fight. And I let you hit me. You know, not everybody has that choice, but I think implicitly, or not implicitly, but inherently, every victim does make that choice. That you let the other person abuse you. You let the other person hit you. You know, you, you do make that choice because... Well, m maybe the second time you let them. Yeah. I. You know, if, if you don't go, well... Well, yeah. I'm never letting that happen again. Yeah. Um, although I would also imagine that there are situations where, uh, you know, a, it's a married situation and the there isn't a shelter that the woman can just grab her kids and go to that night. Yeah. And so um, I would I would respectfully disagree okay. that, 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 that that's every situation. Right now, right now you're telling me that you disagree, but I have a feeling that you're going to agree with me in a minute. Okay. The actual physical strike, that is not the first time. The cycle, you know, the abuse pattern starts much earlier than that. It starts with how you talk to somebody. It starts with how you call them names. It starts with how you tell them what to do. It doesn't start with a slap. It starts further. And that's where, you know, anybody, anybody who listens to this who can even relate to this in any way, shape, or form, if somebody's telling you, what you can do or what you can wear or what you should eat or anything else that's outside of the normal bounds of style or healthy eating, you know, you should mm -hmm. consider whether that person is doing the right thing and, and treating you the way that you deserve to be treated because we do train people how to treat us. You know, I remember one time I had a good friend and um, she worked at a bar and I said, you know, you know, could I get another beer? And she turned around and was like, you know, I'll deal with you in a minute. I told her right then and there. I said, listen, my friends do not talk to me like this. Don't talk to me like that again. She never did. Why didn't you do that with your, with your wife? I'm not blaming you. I'm just curious. <laughs> it's a very good question. If I if I knew the answer to that, we wouldn't be here. Because it was love. Yeah. Because right? oh, of the good. Because I the loved good, her. Yeah. Because of the good parts. I yeah. Guess. I mean, I I really. I mean, I still do care for her, and I want her to get help for the stuff that she has. Because I wouldn't. I wouldn't want anybody to have to go through the world being so mad all the time. Um. You know. I mean, she has gotten better to a certain extent, but. At the same time, the last thing I want is for my children to suffer as I have against her demons, because they don't deserve that. And right now, it's fine because they're small and they're cute. But you know what happens when they start when they start back. when they start mouthing off? Um, you know that will happen. I mean, I know that when I was a kid, I definitely did say some things to my parents that, like, I do regret now. But my parents weren't violent people. So, you know, that's the thing. And, and, you know, and talking to my therapist about this and going through it, like, there's one thing, like, I can't worry about what's going to happen five years or ten years down the line. Mm -hmm. um, that It's not healthy for me. It's not It just doesn't help anything at all. Um, 
But, you know, what I can do is try to make sure that I have a close relationship with my kids and I know what's going on. And, you know, I've tried my best to have a good relationship with, you know, my partner. But, you know, this reason only goes so far. And, you know, when people are people are hurt or angry, they're not in a reasonable state. So we'll see how things go i just don't know yet well i appreciate you coming in and uh sharing that i i, I learned a lot uh talking to you and i realized as we're talking i i know so little about domestic violence in general but especially with uh male male victims and uh you know i know as a sex abuse survivor and you know my per- per- perpetrator was was my mom um i feel a tremendous amount of anger when i hear people say uh, women can't be perpetrators and you know and i just feel rage so i apologize mm-hmm. if i've said anything uh, ignorant that um minimizes anything that you've experienced yeah. or that anybody listening uh has experienced i'm i'm trying to learn and um I thank you for uh, for coming in. Yeah, it's, it's this. great to be here. You're you're a nice guy to talk to. Right back um, at you. Yeah. So I guess you know the one last thing that I'd have to really add, just and this is totally as somebody who's suffered from this. If if you got somebody who is not treating you in the way that you know is right and you know you deserve, I mean nobody deserves to be hit. Nobody deserves to be yelled at. Nobody deserves to be treat it as if you're not awesome because you are and if you're with somebody who doesn't treat you awesome maybe they're not the right person for you and maybe being alone is better for right now for sure be awesome by yourself that's what i'm working on and if you can't be alone go get help for for fear of being alone yeah yeah cool thanks daniel all right many thanks to to daniel and the reason that if the sound seemed like a little hollow or funny. Uh, he had a bit of a dry mouth. And um, I know a lot of our listeners have misophonia or misophonia, however you pronounce it. And so I wanted them to be able to get through it without uh, it, it driving them crazy. So that was a little com- little compromise I make so that everybody's happy because I'm a disgusting people pleaser. Let's give some love to our uh, sponsor for this episode, The Great Courses Plus. I have been diving into uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy lectures. I just finished the second one, and they are fascinating. Um, They talk about uh, the history of it. They break down the sort of the triangle of uh, the relationship between uh, thought, emotions, and behaviors, and they get into the, the tools of self-monitoring, setting goals, identifying the feelings, and it's really cool. I think you guys would dig it. So uh, the Great Courses Plus, they give you unlimited access to dive deep into any topic that interests you, and you can learn from some of the world's best professors and experts. You can watch or listen at any time from anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app, and there's thousands of lectures to stream across virtually any topic, like human behavior, history, photography. So you guys should go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental. You'll get a special limited time offer if you sign up now. You get a full 
free month of unlimited access to their lectures, just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental to start your free month. And I'll put that URL under our show notes. Also, the podcast always needs your help, financial or otherwise, for a list of ways that you can help it out. Again, go to the show notes for this episode, and uh, they're all listed there, and they are all greatly appreciated. Let's get to some surveys. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Cortisol Queen, and she writes, I was in bed with my boyfriend, and we were chatting about ridiculous things before falling asleep. I realized he had drifted off for the night, and part of me wanted to wake him up because if he died in his sleep, his last words would have been craisins and cremains oatmeal, and I couldn't deal with that. Uh, my, my ex and I used to do that when we were trying to fall asleep. We would play a game called Thoughts to Make You Shiver, and uh, it, was, it was fun trying to outgross each other. I think a good a good last thing to say to somebody that they remember you by is your breath smells like ass. How'd you like to be haunted by that as the last thing you said to somebody? Oh. This is one of two surveys I mentioned earlier in the podcast where people said that they... F- because of what they think or things they've done or experienced that they feel like a monster. And this is the first one. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself okay, and then there's a little smiley face. He is straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally abused. He writes, uh, only if emotional neglect is a form of abuse, but abuse seems to me more of an active thing on the part of the abuser, whereas neglect is passive on the part of the neglector. I think the intent of the person who caused the harm or neglect is much less important than the feelings and the wound left in the aftermath. And so I do consider neglect to be a form of abuse because a child has the right to be seen and protected and educated and fed and um, guided. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, my mother definitely made sacrifices for me and my siblings, always did her best, and she was there for me. It felt great. One of my best memories is being up on the kitchen bench while she put plasters on my cuts and grazes because I fell over somewhere. I think I was roller skating. I asked her if I could have the plasters in a cross shape because that's how they did it in cartoons and comics. Oh, I guess plasters must mean uh, Band-Aids. I thought she might say no because it was wasteful and plasters were, quote, expensive, but I was upset and knew that that would cheer me up. Oh, I guess, and she knew that that would cheer me up. To my delight, she smiled and totally played along. This really complicates things because she was a single parent working a full-time job, and although she got decent financial support from my dad and some family support from a sister that lived nearby, it must still be tough and her heart was in the right place and she really was trying. So it's so difficult to be angry with her or really deal with any of my issues that might involve some element of blaming her. 
to which I would say, you don't have to blame her to her face. Find someone to let the feelings out with, even if it's you just journaling. It's not about blaming them. It's about you releasing the pain and all the feelings that fuck us up. Um, Think of it as your soul taking a shit. How's that? Uh, Continuing, uh, that might involve some element of blaming her. That would make me feel so guilty and bad about myself that I really can't do it, which probably leads to some unconscious resentment. Why is everything a vicious cycle that feeds itself and makes it stronger? It only does it when we don't let it out and we don't let help in. I mean, evolutionarily, how does that even work? What is adaptive or useful about that sort of psychological mechanism? Seriously, what the hell, evolution, explain yourself. Uh, Darkest thoughts, that I might be a psychopath. At the moment, I convince myself that I am not by the fact that although I have difficulty connecting with real life emotionally, movies and TV still give me feels every once in a while. Like for a moment, I will I will feel genuine joy and gladness that this or that couple have been to and fro throughout the whole season and then finally they get married or genuinely gutted for a character when a relationship with the girl he really likes blows up in his face. It gives me hope that I have some ugly vestigial uh, form of empathy that maybe I can nurture and grow to be applicable to my real life. Dude, you are so not a psychopath. You are so not a psychopath. Um, yeah, I think you're you're isolated and, and perhaps a bit numb and cut off from your feelings because my guess would be that you had to shut down to not feel the pain of that neglect in childhood. But um, now listen, if you go on a killing spree, I am not held accountable. All right? Darkest Secrets. Um, he describes having cared for a couple of mice when he was a child and, um, they died and he writes to this day, uh, he, he was a little kid and he wasn't really thinking through about the care that they needed and, um, but it wasn't abusive or anything to this day. And he was a child to this day. I regret my cowardice, both of not asking my mom to help me figure out how to look after them and for not cleaning up the mess that was entirely of my own making. It was so fucked up and I will perpetually question my suitability for owning pets or having children, more so that I do just because of my regular garden variety emotional issues. This will inevitably lead to a lot of pain if the discussion of kids ever comes up with a partner, especially since it's unlikely that I'll ever fully explain why I don't want kids for their fear of judgment. Man, the the theme I'm already seeing in all of your feelings or a lot of your feelings is guilt and self-doubt. And I I think growing up where there isn't emotional consistency in our household, um that that will fill in in the absence of nurturing and feeling validated. That is yeah. Continuing, I was also introduced to pornography and taught to masturbate by a marginally older family friend around the age of seven. I think this is pretty young, question mark. I feel like this was pretty inappropriate and has 
an impact on my relationship with women. I consider myself to be very respectful to women, and I genuinely believe that men and women should be considered equal because we are equal, but this is an active process. I have come to this conclusion by logic, and so I have to think it to myself constantly in order to fight my automatic instinctive drives that have ended up programmed in a different way. I equate sex with affection, I guess, and so any act of affection becomes automatically tied up with sexuality in my mind. So things become pretty Freudian in my head when I interact with my family, obviously making me very uncomfortable and thus forming a blocking barrier to good connection and relationships. I also have trouble interpreting any act interaction with a girl as anything other than romantic, so forming a barrier to fulfilling platonic relationships with women which I know could be so informative and helpful to me. I hate the thought that I might be that creepy guy that girls catch looking at them because my eyes have instinctively focused on them and it takes another millisecond for my rational self to kick in and make me look in another direction. I am so, so sorry to anyone I've made feel uncomfortable in this way. I want them to know if they don't already that it is not their fault and I am working on it, but they should know that they don't have to be afraid. I would never ever act on that impulse. That goes the other way too. Maybe someone was flirting with me, but I can't trust my instinct, and so I snubbed them, which can also be painful, I know. I am sorry. I don't yet have the tools to respond appropriately in a lot of normal situations. You sound like a really, really sweet guy who is being really hard on himself and could just benefit from some more human interaction. And... Um, maybe seeking some type of help for uh, learning how to be intimate, uh, not necessarily sexually, but um, um, connecting to people and learning how to trust. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a journey for me, man. A lot of two steps forward, one step back. And you're not alone. You're not alone. What sexual fantasies are most powerful to you? Really, my sexual fantasies are pretty vanilla. Despite what I've suggested above, I really just enjoy straightforward vaginal sex and blowjobs. I'm really not even fussed about anal. I love that sentence. I'm not fussed about anal. If that is not the first line of a product jingle, I'm not fussed about anal because Clorox does the trick. I really do like the idea of having two girls put their lips around my dick at the same time. I think that's as adventurous as I get. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my dad that he really fucked me up by not being there physically. I would like to tell my mom she really fucked me up by not being there emotionally and then immediately apologize and take it back. I would like to tell my brother and sister that I'm sorry I didn't really participate in the family. I thought everyone would be better off if I just tried to remove my negative influence from every situation. I have a feeling somebody really pounded some negative self-talk into your head. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? To feel excited about someone or something again. To discover some sort of direction in life. To be interested in life. Have you shared these things with others? No. To me, they're too reprehensible, horrible, and disgusting. I've come to terms with it to some degree and know that I'm on a much better path in a direction taking me far, far away from that stuff now. But the possibility that another person wouldn't understand is too real. So telling them about it is a risk that doesn't make any sense for me to take. 
I'm not sure I even really understand what you are so, what you think is so disgusting and reprehensible. Was it the pornography that you were looking at? Um, I mean, my God, you, you sound like a really safe guy. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Frightened that I'll finally be the first fuck-up that Paul is actually disgusted by and totally beats down on how I'm an awful, terrible person, that I've totally got this wrong and I'm not actually supposed to share this fucked-up shit. The anonymity is only to protect survivors of sexual abuse from being identified to their peers. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's not your fault. Try to learn to identify when strong emotions are coming on and see if you can find a way to react differently to them before your thoughts and actions feed back into your emotions and they start to run away with you. That, that's, a fun, that's cognitive behavioral therapy right right there. And um, man, you, I have found somebody that is harder on themselves than me. Thank you. Thank you for existing. Continue beating yourself up so that I am not at the top of the list or bottom of the list, whatever, however you'd classify that. And this is the second survey filled up by a woman who calls herself uh, Loves to Struggle. And she is, and this is kind of a long one and it can get pretty graphic. Um, she's in her 30s. She identifies as mostly straight, but can find people of all genders and sexual orientations extremely attractive. She was the victim of sexual abuse and uh, sometimes reported it, sometimes didn't report it. And then there's some stuff that she's not sure if it counts. Uh, some stuff happened that I didn't really report, like the creepy vibes and inappropriate touching I got from some of the men in my family. My dad would often make me kiss him on the lips. He liked to kneel on the floor next to me when I sat in the recliner to watch TV. He would rest his arm over the arm of the chair and reach his hand between my legs, gripping my upper inner thigh. That is enough for him to be to be uh, taken downtown or you to be removed from the home. That is absolutely sexual abuse. When I would tell him that I didn't want to kiss him on the lips or didn't like the way he was touching me, he would get this disgusted look on his face and yell at me saying, I'm messed up for feeling that way towards my dad. Wow. Projecting his shame onto you. Flash forward to my later teenage years, I had a boyfriend over one night and my dad was half asleep walking around the house, doped up on the Ambien he took for sleeping problems. I was bent over moving laundry from washer to dryer and overheard my dad talking to my boyfriend saying, look at that ass. Love it when they bend over like that. Makes you want to pound him from behind. That is just so, so, so fucked up. My grandpa had stacks and stacks of porno magazines under the bathroom sink and hot and nasty adult digest uh, books stacked up next to his recliner in the living room. When we would go to visit, everyone would spend much too long in the bathroom. I knew what I was doing while in there. And now I realize what everyone was doing in there. Thankfully, my mom wouldn't ever leave me alone with him. But when I hugged him goodbye, he would grab or slap my ass and make a moaning sound, 
God, and give me a too long and deep kiss on the lips. I've already read this, and this is fucking hard reading a second time. Um, My grandpa sexually abused my mom when she was a child, but when my mom told people about it, they called her a liar. One time, when I was probably 14 years old, I was asleep on the couch and woke up to my brother spooning me while he had an erection. He said he thought I was his girlfriend. When we were kids, we did the whole show me yours, I'll show you mine thing, but we also looked at porn together before we really understood why it was so appealing to look at. I saw my first porno magazines before I knew my alphabet. Wow. Wow. That is... What a sentence that is. Thanks in part to my grandpa, but also my dad kept porn in really shitty hiding spots. Uh, You know, I have a feeling that was not accidental on your father's part. Uh, like an orgy porn VHS in his sock drawer. Me and my brother would watch that together. Later, when PCs became a thing, we had a family computer that was set up in the den of our house. Everyone used the one computer, so of course there were porn clips saved on the computer that weren't hidden very well. A woman being fucked by a dog, child pornography, gangbang, and I'm pretty sure something happened with the great uncle but the memories just of me walking out of a room with a bead curtain hanging over the doorway and feeling really disturbed. Fucked up side note, that uncle passed away when I was about 12 years old, and I remember lying in my backyard looking up at the sky and crying, asking God why people die, what happens to them, could I still talk to my uncle, etc. And for some fucking reason, I got turned on and started playing with myself and orgasmed while thinking of my uncle molesting me. Um, as I say often on the podcast, the things that make us the most anxious or hurt us at some point in our lives or made us feel unsafe are very often the thing that gets us off thinking about. It is not a comment on your morality. Uh, when I was about five years old, and you grew up in one of the most hypersexualized environments I have read in eight years of doing this podcast. Um, when I was about five years old, my family lived in an apartment complex with outside corridors. I was outside our apartment playing with another little girl. She had a bike and I had a wagon. A man we didn't know walked up to us and offered to attach the wagon to the bike so we could pull each other around, but we would need to walk over to his workshop in a different apartment building. I said, we may have to ask my mom, so he knocked on my mom's door and my mom told him that's fine. Wow. He walked us girls to an abandoned apartment, made us stand facing the wall and said he would have a surprise for us when we turned around. His surprise that he pulled his pants down and had his dick out. Luckily, my brother and my friend's brother, who were a little bit older, broke into the apartment right after us and told us to run before anything else happened. Told my parents and they called the police and filed a report, but the man was never identified. Later, my family moved into a house and our neighbors were grandparents 
who had a pool in their backyard. In the summertime, they would let their neighborhood kids come swim in the pool. I would go over all the time between the ages of 7 and 12. The grandpa would often be the supervising adult and wore cut-off denim shorts as a swimsuit with nothing underneath. He would squat at the edge of the deck and tell me to swim over so he could ask me something. Meanwhile, his dick was hanging out of the sides of his shorts and right in my face. When he was in the pool, he would offer to pick us up and throw us up in the air and across the pool, which was super fun except when he would slide his hand under my swimsuit to touch my non-existent breasts and grab my ass and prepubescent vagina. He always did these things in a way that left me wondering if it was an accident. It happened quite a lot without me telling anyone, but something changed in my mind eventually. Uh, Then I told my mom about it. She was super upset but didn't want to tell my dad because she was afraid of how he would react. I mean, the ironies is, is thinking that he would be mad at her for letting it happen and would beat her up. And she was afraid that my dad would kill the man, then go to jail. And me, my mom and my siblings would end up on the streets. At first, she said we weren't allowed to go over there anymore. But I think I insisted that I just wouldn't let him do that to me anymore. I just really wanted to keep being able to swim in the pool. Fucked up side note, had my first orgasm while touching myself and thinking of this old man molesting me. I was about 11 years old. My mom has always had the mind of a child, but I wish she would have done more to protect me. The emotions I have around these memories are in flux. I get aroused at times. I got aroused at times while writing this, super fucking pissed off sometimes, and other times it was like I didn't realize some of the things I just recounted were in my brain. I have difficulty getting off to thoughts that aren't associated with my past sexual trauma. Even if I am able to get close to orgasm with a partner or while masturbating to quote normal stuff, I still end up using a fucked up thought or scene to trigger my release. That is so incredibly common, especially with somebody who has been through what you had been through. So stop shaming yourself. That is me shaming you into stopping shaming yourself, which is creating a horrible, horrible vicious cycle. Uh, But seriously, um, I cannot tell you how common a reaction that is. Uh, She's been physically and emotionally abused. Um, Dad beat the shit out of my mom and brother Uh, Those memories consume uh, my childhood. Uh, He gave me black eyes, busted lips. Uh, He called us useless sacks of shit, lazy motherfuckers. Um, Wow. Wow. My mom abused me in a way that I only recognize as abuse now that I'm a full-blown adult and live thousands of miles away from her. I was her caretaker and protector my whole life, and I still struggle with feelings of guilt about how her life has ended up. Maybe I'll write another survey about this specifically, but for now, I'm pretty drained and still not quite sure how to piece together this abusive relationship dynamic positive experiences with the abusers. Yes, there were some happy moments growing up. They are my family and I love them. They are also very damaged people and I sympathize with them. I struggle with wishing I could cut off contact with them and wishing that I could somehow fix them and us all be a support system for each other. It's so fucked. 
it's so good that you see that it's so fucked, though, because some people will never give up on that dream, and they'll keep going to the well for water, and I did it for 20-plus years, and my life really started to grow once I stopped trying to get water from a dry well, and I had an epiphany one day that we should have compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for ourselves. And I think it's time for you to have compassion for yourself. Darkest thoughts. Uh, my sexual fantasies are my deepest, darkest thoughts. I've masturbated while thinking about having sex with my dad, grandpa, and other men in my family. I've orgasmed in my sleep while dreaming about having sex with my mom. People having sex with animals, having the perspective of an observer watching me as a child, being fucked by an older man and or woman, siblings having sex. I think about killing myself a lot. I'm only really ashamed to admit thinking about that to people who I think might think very highly of me. But then again, I'm also pretty convinced everyone hates me at least a little bit. Darkest Secrets. When I was a little girl, probably 12 years old, I molested a baby boy that I was babysitting. I pulled down his diaper and took his tiny penis into my mouth. At about the same age, my sister and I shared a bed. She is almost 10 years younger than me. I had just learned how to masturbate, and I wanted to feel what it was like to kiss someone with tongue. While she was sleeping, I slipped my tongue in her mouth while I played with myself, and I came instantly. I started to do this a lot waiting for her to fall asleep and then using her like a doll while I masturbated. At least one time, I took her leg between mine and grinded my pussy against her leg while I kissed her until I came. The night I stopped doing this was when I noticed she was clenching her mouth to keep her teeth closed so that I w couldn't put my tongue on hers. I don't know if she was awake or aware or has any memory that I did this to her. I wish I could tell her that I'm sorry, but I'm afraid that she doesn't know about it and if I tell her, she will hate me. Around this age, I also tried to make the family dog have sex with me. I would get, I would get, take off my pants. Uh, I think that's a typo. I would take off my pants and get on my knees, trying to call him over to mount me. He didn't want to. So from this position, I would pull his front legs to make him mount me but he would growl and gnash his teeth. Then I would turn over onto my back and pull him on top of me so he was between my legs and I could feel his furry penis on my pussy. Then I would rock his body up and down while I moved my hips until I came. I tried using my hands to play with his penis and balls too. In my adult life, I tried putting peanut butter on my vagina so that a dog would lick my pussy. It worked, but I wasn't aroused by the act. So I made the dog stop took a shower to wash off the peanut butter, and then masturbated until I came, imagining it had been enjoyable. Sometimes I masturbate imagining that I am a man or transsexual with a cock, and I stroke my clit like a cock between my thumb and index finger until I come. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Talk openly to my sexual abusers and tell them that I know what happened. This way, maybe they can acknowledge and let go of that part of themselves and heal if they realize that I was aware this whole time and still accept it and love them. 
You know, the, the thing I, I see in this is this, the thing I see through all of this is that you are always caring for other people at the expense of yourself. You know, if you are going to talk to your abusers, do it for you. Because you can't control whether it'll sink in, whether they'll deny it or accept it, and whether they'll change. And it will make you crazy wanting to do that. What, if anything, do you wish for? Forgiveness, emotional and financial stability. It's time to forgive yourself. You know, it is time to forgive yourself. The things that you did as a child were a result of you growing up in one of the most sexualized, fucked up environments I have seen. I mean, it it was a wall-to-wall sexual predator from your father to your brother to the other relatives to the neighbor. I mean, and then, you know, you throw in the pornography laying around and your mom not protecting you and, oh my God. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some of my fantasies with others I knew intimately, like masturbating my clit like a cock. The other stuff, not really. I got close with my most recent partner, told him about the animal porn I was exposed to and that it aroused me when I watched it as a child. Also told him that I had sexually abused a girl much younger who I shared a bed with. Didn't say it was my sister, but I think he knew. He accepted me and told me not to beat myself up about it because I was a child agreed and the fact is you're not doing these things anymore it would be a vastly different thing if you were an adult who knew the difference between right and wrong and and has the tools to heal that's what you should focus on is the tools to heal and begin to love yourself and set boundaries with toxic people How do you feel after writing these things down? Surprised that I feel like I've listed most of my big trauma in one survey. Surprised that it only took me a couple of hours. And surprised at how my trauma seems confined to these moments, yet it has consumed my entire existence. Feeling like I'm ready to move on from this. Just wish it was that easy. Also feel like I need to masturbate because of how it's aroused me to think about this shit. Also feel like I should die. Also feel like I need to binge on food until I numb out. Also kind of have a headache and neck ache for sitting and typing so long. Um, thank you for your candor. You know, thank you for um, taking the time to, to do that. This, this podcast would not be what it is without the people like you who bury your souls and walk back through that that pain and that shame um, because it helps other people feel less alone. I guarantee you that hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people who hear this survey will feel less alone, will feel less like, oh, nobody's like me or nobody would understand me. I really hope that you you seek out the love that that you 
deserve. And I think a support group would be an awesome place. Some type of support group for a survivor of sexual abuse. I've mentioned it before, but the uh, Rape and Incest National Network um, is a good resource to uh, connect you with counseling that uh, will either be very low uh, in price or possibly free. Go to uh, rainn.org. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Heathen Parishioner. And she writes, My church had a pride celebration service this Sunday. It's still weird to say my church because I don't identify as Christian and probably never will. Too much baggage. Part of the baggage is having grown up as a gay kid, being rejected by most people who called themselves Christian, being told I was going to hell, or even worse, having them lovingly tell me that they would, quote, pray for me, which meant they would ask God to save me from my sinful gay ways. And they would encourage me to pray to be changed. Like I was a giant mistake and the power was within me to just fix myself and if I wasn't straight I wasn't praying hard enough because deep down I didn't really want to be saved. Recovering from that mindfuck has been and continues to be a process. The church I attend now is part of that process. It has a rainbow flag hanging outside year-round on its stone walls right next to the front doors. Inside, the clergy and congregation are truly open and affirming to the LGBTQIA community. Close to half the congregation identifies as queer in some way. It means so much to have a place like this where I can just show up, participate fully in everything, be completely open about who I am, and it is totally normal, accepted, and no big deal. So even though my church fully affirms and uplifts the queer community, we haven't dedicated a service to pride specifically before, and the clergy decided we should do that. This past Sunday, we all showed up in our rainbow and love is love shirts for church. The whole sanctuary was decorated in a rainbow theme. The words to our hymn had been written to specifically include LGBTQIA people. Our Sunday school teacher had all the kids come up front for their lesson before going to Sunday school, and the teacher explored the word pride with them and how it meant feeling good about who you are just as you are. For the sermon, two of our congregants shared their powerful stories of struggle with coming out and the joy of finding a community of faith on the other side of that journey. Our pastors performed a ritual ritual of anointment. If we wanted to receive a blessing, we would come forward and receive a touch of oil on our foreheads while the pastor blessed us as a full and worthy child of God who had created us exactly as we were meant to be made. The choir, which I am a part of, sang Hezekiah Walker's I Need You to, I Need You to Survive. This was the part that was truly overwhelming. I am not sure what the original intent of the title was, but I took it as, I need you to survive. I need you to be here just as you are. I almost couldn't make it through the song. I have struggled with suicidal ideation throughout much of my life. And while I never attempted suicide, there have been some close calls. I had never thought of being a survivor of the toxic, internalized shame that lives in my brain. But I guess it is something to survive, and I have. As we were singing, I looked out at the congregation, and people were having a similar reaction to me, wiping tears away. 
It was overwhelming and so meaningful to see all of us here having this deeply needed healing experience. At the end of the service, we sang We Are Family by Sister Sledge, and everyone got up and danced around the sanctuary. I wish everyone who has been ostracized and isolated by religion could have this experience. I am so grateful for it and so grateful to have a spiritual home and family like this. And that is that is the end of our uh, episode, which was beautifully coincid- coincidental uh, with all the themes of, of belonging and um, feeling a part of. And right now I'm hating the way I just wrapped that up with those last two sentences. Oh, look at me. I had a nice moment of joy and a good three-second breather before the mean uh, voice started kicking in. I don't feel like doing mean TJ voice right now. My voice hurts. Anyway, I hope uh, I hope you heard something that you got something out of in this episode. Um, I'm, I feel a part of this community that the, that the podcast uh, has, and it's really nice. It's nice to feel like I belong somewhere between my support groups and uh, my hockey friends and my comedy buddies. Um, this, but honestly, this is this and the support groups are where I can really, really lay it bare and know that somebody will say "me too" or "you shouldn't feel ashamed, you're a human being," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So just remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.